Thank you very much for joining this podcast. My name is Marije Groen. In today's episode, the forces driving the energy transition are all now starting to work. However, identifying the companies with the greatest exposure to the energy transition is not easy. That is something we'll discuss with Mark Lacey, Head of Global Resource Equities at Schroeders and responsible for the Schroeders ISF Global Energy Transition Fund. And Felix O'Day, Portfolio Manager and Global Renewables Analyst at Schroeders. Mark and Felix, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome. Now, before we start talking about the investment opportunities in the energy transition, um, maybe you could briefly introduce yourselves to our listeners. Uh, Mark. Yes, um, I'm responsible for the Global Energy Transition Fund, along with a couple of other equity funds, which sit within resource equities at Schroders. I have, I'm quite old now, I have about 25 years experience um, managing um, resource equity funds in my career so um, but here today I'm looking forward to talking about the energy transition fund in particular as it's a very very important subject for the next couple of decades. Great to have you Mark. Um, so my name is Felix Lady. I joined Schroders about four and a half years ago um, straight from university and I've been with the team for about three and a half years looking at energy um, and I'm on the energy transition fund as well as the conventional energy fund. Great. And both of you are joining us from London, right? You're yes. In UK? Yes. That's correct. How's, how's the situation over there? It's um, the same as everywhere else in Europe. <laughs> uh, very right. back and forth. And uh, hopefully we get some stability by the end of the year and, and improvement. Uh, very uh, COVID impacted at the moment, as you can imagine. Yeah, as, as you say, as everywhere else, I can imagine. Let's hope for the best and, and, and see how Absolutely. that changes towards the end of the year. Um, so let's talk about the energy transition, Mark. Um, governments, consumers and investors recognize that switching to more sustainable energy is not only essential to stop climate change, but also make sound economic sense. Does that collective awareness influence the pace of the energy transition? Yeah, it, it definitely impacts the pace. And, and, the, and the reason being is um, government policy has had an impact on energy investing um, through many, many decades, particularly in conventional energy. But the, the energy transition is completely different. This is a structural change in the energy system. And this is important because the last time we had this structural change was about 70 years ago with the discovery of oil and the introduction of effectively one consumer product in particular, which was basically the automobile. But this is different. This is government influence driven by the need to do it from a climate perspective. Secondly, there's a need to do it because you have the consumer influence as well. But there's a need to do it because of that climate perspective that there needs to be a massive amount of investment to address it. If we don't do this change in the energy system, we're on a path to a four degree increase in in temperatures effectively globally, and that's not sustainable for the planet. Now, you normally have these influences from a consumer-led product like the, like the iPhone, for example, that, that's had a change in the way we communicate, and that, that's consumer pull. But what, we, what we're seeing in the energy transition sector for the next few decades is you've got government support, you've got consumer take-up, and you've got an amazing amount of investment going into the sector. And it's those three powerful forces in coordination which really sets up um, 
from a positive perspective that this change is definitely happening in the, in the energy system and it's across the entire energy system, but also it's a positive um, from the fact that you've, from an investor's perspective, because obviously that, that's what this call is about as well, um, that you've effectively got visibility on equity appreciation in the long term because of the amount of investment that's going into this space. And we will talk later about the level of investment, but ultimately... Yes, so maybe, maybe let's talk a bit about that investment opportunity, because over the next 30 years, as you say, the world's energy system will shift from one that's more based on fossil fuels to one that's probably dominated by renewable electricity. So where, where do we see that investment opportunity? What, what does that offer? Yeah, and that's a good question, because normally what you have is Everyone assumes that by dealing with this energy transition phase that it's just focused on putting in more wind farms and more solar farms, but that's just not the case. You know, electricity generation is going to increase by fourfold um, purely between now and 2050, purely from basically um, the renewable portion. So the renewable portion of electricity generation is going to increase fourfold, but that's not the magnitude of the entire change. Because as you move from basically and uh, a gasoline or diesel-based vehicle into an electric vehicle that actually adds to the speed at which we need, need to grow the electricity generation from renewables. So, but it's not just wind and solar that eventually that investment's going into. You need transmission cables, you need distribution upgrades, you need offshore cables, you need all parts of the value chain, all the way from renewable generation, all the way up to the plug socket in order to basically enable this transition. And that's very important, which includes battery technologies, storage, because that's really important, because effectively you've got, it's not windy all the time and it's not sunny all the time. So what's the best way to capture that energy and release it at the right times? It's through storage applications. And, it's, and you also need energy efficiency products as well. So please bear in mind that at the same time, we're gonna consume more electricity, but there are lots of developing technologies which reduce our energy consumption in order to make us much more efficient consumers. And that's just as important part of the transition phase. Right, right. Uh, Felix, maybe a question for you. How do you see energy transition dealing with the need for baseload power as renewables become a large part uh, of the grid, a, l a large portion of the grid? So ultimately, the question of baseload power involves kind of two parts. So the first is the integration of renewables, and the other is how do you actually how, how do you um, how do you generate that baseload? Uh, one of the questions that we often get is, is our fund able to address the full energy transition opportunity, given that we don't invest in nuclear, and given that nuclear could potentially be part of that baseload? I think the way that we think about this is that, first of all, on the integration part, we've already seen a huge amount of optimism actually coming from COVID. So what I mean by that is, during COVID, you had industrial demand shrinking, whilst renewables were still operating. So renewables actually ended up becoming a much larger portion of the grid during uh, the first quarter. So to put some numbers around that, um, as a result of lower demand from industrial activity and also actually very beneficial weather, it was very, very windy in Q1. Somewhere like the UK went from about 30% renewables to about 45%. So what that means is, whereas before people were quite worried that the grid would start to struggle once you reach those levels. COVID has actually shown just how possible it is to integrate a very large portion uh, of renewables. On the, on the nuclear technology point and on the baseload, which is the second part of this question, um, first of all, we, the reason we're less optimistic on nuclear is that we just see uh, 
that nuclear doesn't quite have the same drivers that Mark has just been talking about, that government support, economic cost, and also consumer uh, driver. So unless we see a real paradigm shift in the technology, we, we, we don't see that as being as exciting. And actually on the renewables, as, as things like offshore wind become a larger portion, offshore wind ends up acting like baseload because they're much larger turbines, they're capturing uh, higher altitude wind networks, which are much more reliable. Likewise, uh, one of the things we're seeing is that grids in Europe in particular are becoming much more international. And so countries are able to trade power back and forth. And that really helps to kind of even out that um, intermittency of, of renewables. Um, and I guess the final part, which Mark again has touched on, is storage. And what we're seeing is that more and more complex, more and more sophisticated technologies are coming out to deal with uh, different base loads at different times. So we've got things like lithium-ion, which can balance the grid on a daily and even microsecond basis. We've got things like vanadium redox flow batteries that can do a more interday. And then we have things like hydrogen and hydro as well, which are able to balance that over a season. So all in all, we're, we're actually much less worried about renewables not being able to make up that base load. And we think that you've got all these auxiliary technologies that are really helping us to get there. Hmm. Now let's just take uh, maybe a step back before we look forward. You already mentioned uh, COVID, um, Felix, but Mark, has COVID-19 and the resulting oil price collapse had a negative impact on near-term growth prospects and the speed at which this uh, structural shift in the energy system is changing? Okay, if we go back to March, April time, if you'd asked me that question then, I would have, we would definitely have the conclusion that near-term impacts would have been negative on any company operating with the energy transition sector, in particular the companies which have to deal with logistics like the wind turbine installers, for example. So the first thing is, is that there have been some logistical constraints within some of those businesses across the entire value chain, but they've been relatively minor relative to the stimulus programs which have been thrown at the energy sector. And, uh, and in particular, let's, let's start with the ECB and the European Commission submitting a 750 billion stimulus program. So it's not, a, it's not a five minute stimulus program. This is for the next few years that the European Commission have put by 750 billion of investment. Now on an annual run rate, this is uh, more than double the run rate of fossil fuels on an annual basis already the 750 billion. So it shows you the scale of investment. And then you look at China, China have addressed the situation with COVID by putting in a $2 trillion program. And the last program, which we'll find out the impacts of this in November, is with um, Joe Biden. Joe Biden's entire policy for winning um, the presidential election centers around investment in the clean energy system. And he's put forward as a, a stimulus program, which is $500 billion per annum for the next four years, which is five times that of the run rate of fossil fuels spent in the US at this point in time. So governments in response to COVID have actually increased the visibility of investment and sustainable growth in the energy transition sector. The last point in relation to oil, because you asked about the oil price collapse, the oil price collapse has had an opposite effect with the oil majors. You would have expected them to cut capital expenditure across the board and even cut back on their renewable energy spending plans. But they haven't. They've done the opposite thing. They've increased their renewable energy spending plans by at least two to three times the run rate that they had forecast a year ago. 
even though they've had to cut their conventional capital expenditure by around about 30 to 40%. So you're seeing this transition is not been impacted by COVID. And if anything, the visibility has improved substantially. Hmm. That's good news, I guess, right? That's uh, that's a positive. Uh, but then if we look at the risks of the COVID to energy transition stocks, Felix, what, do you, what can you say about that? Yeah, completely. So, I mean, I think we have to go back to that kind of April patch to really um, look at what the impacts of COVID have been. And I think the energy transition stocks in, in many ways are like any of any companies out there. When COVID first hit, there was a supply and there was a demand impact. Um, so we were being very diligent in getting hold and, and being in their constant communication with the companies we look at to make sure that those companies were managing their supply chains well. They weren't going to be caught out on networking capital moves. Um, and actually what we've seen is that largely those companies have done an incredibly good job of getting up to speed, shifting supply chains where they need to be, uh, and, and also ensuring that their staff are safe during this time. So I, I think the first thing is there was a supply risk that has largely been dealt with. And actually uh, it, it's been used as a catalyst in many cases to drive costs out of the business and diversifying that kind of supply chain reliance. So that's the su supply side. On the demand side, there is definitely still a little bit more uncertainty like there is uh, across the world. And obviously uh, we've seen companies recently giving their H2 guidance. And it's a very difficult time for these companies to be doing that because you have second wave fear, you have uh, areas of the world that are still very much um, very much ha handling COVID-19, such as Mexico, such as India. Um, but I think what we do see is that actually the energy transition stocks are probably less at risk than a lot of the other companies um, in, in, the, in the wider equity space, just because a lot more of them uh, are project-based. So you have visibility on, on your demand, you have visibility on when you need to be delivering these projects. Uh, and likewise, if you look in the energy generation space, you also have visibility on what you're going to receive in your, um, from your power pricing. So you have less uncertainty, you have more uh, variables that you're in control of on the demand side. But obviously, uh, and probably the final point is that for a lot of these companies, for things like residential solar, for residential storage, these companies in most, most jurisdictions were labeled as an essential service, which meant that they were able to continue to operate largely un, un, uninhibited during the COVID-19. So there is, there's still risks on the demand side. Uh, I, th I think that that goes for, for everything around the world. But actually, I think the energy transition space tends to be more resilient than others uh, in that regard. Let's maybe talk about your strategy for a moment, uh, Mark. The, the complex nature of the energy transition means that identifying winners and losers in this team is probably not easy. What is your approach to this? Uh, well, as performance will tell you across the entire industry, fund management is not easy, full stop. Um, and so what we're trying to do and the reason we've outperformed is it comes back to a process. That's the first thing. Um, and you have to stick to your process. You can't be drawn into how other people would invest, particularly with regards to momentum. Um, but, but your starting point is gaining the expertise. So myself, Felix Odie and Alex Monk, who's not on the call today, but he's a central part of our strategy. We all look at the, the, all look at the energy transition sector together. And we bring into that approach expertise in the form of renewables, but also expertise in the form of the conventional 
um, energy industry because that's changing so much. So first you need the expertise, then you need the investment process. And our investment process is just really, really disciplined. We use a DCF modeling approach for selecting the companies, but that's not really appropriate using that in isolation for the way we select, select the stocks. We also do a GARP overlay, which looks at the near-term cash flow growth of those individual companies as well. Because a lot of these companies are sinking capital expenditure but you don't see the benefits of the earnings coming through until three or four years time, but you get the equity appreciation so much faster way ahead of that earnings inflection point. And that's what we try and capture with the GARP score. So that's the way we select winners and losers. Um, the weightings in the portfolio are um, heavily influenced by liquidity and the risk and management quality as well. So we, and, and balance sheet integrity is probably one of the most essential parts. If you look at our portfolio relative to the peers, and we have a much, much gear, lower gearing ratio across the portfolio versus the other peers in the market. And what does that lead to? It means that our fund volatility is so much lower than our peers in the sector, even though we've put in the strong performance in terms of absolute appreciation and relative appreciation. Mm. And, and Felix, in your view, which companies and maybe which part of the energy sector in particular are well placed to benefit from uh, the energy transition? So I think I think. There are the kind of more obvious areas uh, that are going to benefit. And when you look at where stimulus is going, if you look at how markets are set up in terms of how consolidated they are, there's areas like uh, wind, which we're excited about. There's also solar. As I said, they are probably the more obvious areas. There are very consolidated markets. You've got a few big players operating that. And you've also got a larger part, uh, part of their profits becoming High, uh, highly visible because they're sort of service service parts. Um, but actually, the area that we're really excited about is more the derivatives of that at the moment. So things like the cable layers, so the Nexans and Prismians, or people who create the monopiles, which basically are the base of the offshore wind uh, turbines, so companies like SIF. Um, and likewise, actually, again, a bit more of a derivative, but some of the electrical equipment names who've done very well. So, you know, big names that are very uh, recognizable, like Schneider, like Legrand, like Eaton, ABB. A lot of those companies have been transitioning their business model very quickly uh, to enabling that electrification that Mark's spoken about and enabling uh, that decarbonization as well. So we're ex there's lots of different exciting parts in terms of the, uh, what names we choose in the individual companies. That always has to be down to valuation, and that goes back to our process. So we might we might really like something from a thematic point of view, take hydrogen as, as an example, but if we can't get comfortable with the valuations, or if the balance sheets are stretched to a point where we're not comfortable, then then that's mm. also going to impact what's in the It's off the charts. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, um, Mark, why do you think that the traditional approach to stock market investing fails to reap the benefits in this area? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about the question, really, in terms of traditional approaches, because when people talk about traditional approaches, I'm assuming they mean value investing. Right. Um, and and I, I just want to be clear on that. There is a t At the moment, value investing is very out of favour. Um, as you can see, value versus growth. Um, mark my words, the day a fund manager says that value investing is dead, is the, probably the low in the market and all you're going to get is value outperforming from that point onwards. So I'm very, very careful not to criticise value investment because at the end of the day, a discounted cash flow model highlights stocks which basically are in the value part of the, of, of the market. 
And we use a DCF approach. But as I mentioned before, the reason we use the GARP overlay is because we're looking at companies which have value, but also have that growth bias, which is inflecting over the next three to four years as well. So I don't, I don't want to criticize traditional approaches. I just want to say that what we use is an adaptive approach, which gives us that a lot more flexibility. So that's probably yeah, the best no, way no, to answer that clear. question. Yeah, yeah, no, very clear, very clear. Uh, and, and then how do you manage and understand risk in that, in that environment? And, and I touched on this earlier. It's a good question because um, you and I could actually easily put together a basket of stocks just from the passive index and just throw investors into this space. Um, because everything seems to be going up at the moment, which is something that we're just very, very wary of. Um, there's a lot of equities that have appreciated, but the balance sheet risk is absolutely terrible. Um, stuff that you would never put clients' money into. You know, these are balance sheets which are stretched on six to seven times gearing. Um, that's debt to basically EBITDA we're looking at in terms of those gearing levels. So if you get any problems on debt, there is no value left for the equity holder. And so we've active, we're actively avoiding companies like that within the portfolio. So there's one element of how we manage risk. The first point on the risk is basically balance sheet strength. And that's, as I keep saying, the balance sheet strength of our portfolio is very, very comfortable, firstly. The second thing, point is in terms of risking and the sizing of the positions, it has to come back to management's track record and liquidity of the individual equity. Now, we're not, a, we're not a buy and sell fund. We don't buy stocks, sell stocks day to day. We're not day traders. We have a low portfolio turnover. But at the same time, though, we've got to keep make sure that our position size, particularly post periods of outperformance for individual stocks, is managed to an element where we have that flexibility at the fund level as well. So portfolio sizing is typically 2 to 3% positions across the portfolio, depending on the liquidity of the stock. And a final question, Mark. Um, do you think active thematic portfolio managers are better able to distinguish between winners and losers? Um, it's a strange question, um, but <laughs> I, think what, I think what the question means is, uh, is someone who's basically focusing on just purely that space, does that make them better than a generalist fund manager? Well, a generalist is a jack of all trades. Um, they have a very, very difficult job, in my opinion, because they have to look at all sectors and distinguish between the best across all those sectors. I think if you identify a space, whether it's um, tech or whether it's the energy transition space, and you have investors that have, are experienced in this space, um, like myself, but that's probably coincidence, um, for many, many years of investing, you have the better ability to select um, the winners and losers structurally because you've seen them evolve over time. So definitely, I think there's a place for thematic funds when you have that specialization and there's a clear growth area, which is what's happening in the energy transition sector. I don't think they're better than generalist fund managers because they have a very difficult job. But I think where you have a, an obvious theme which is occurring at the moment within this space, it makes complete sense to invest on a thematic basis because a passive index is not the way to do it for thematic investing. Um, uh, you know, hence why we've outperformed the index so far, as an example. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mark and Felix. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for your time. I would like to thank today's guests, Mark Lacey, Head of Global Resource Equities at Schroeder's and responsible for the Schroeder's ISF Global Energy Transition Fund. 
and Felix O'Day, Portfolio Manager and Global, Global Renewables Analyst at Schroeder's. This podcast about thematic investing is offered to you by Schroeder's. It was recorded as part of a series dedicated to the Fonts Event 2020 Strategy Shift. For more podcasts, please visit fontsevent.nl. And if you'd like to know more about investing in the energy transition, please check out the Schroeder's website, schroeders.com. De standpunten en meningen die in deze podcast opgenomen zijn, zijn die van Mark Lacey en Felix Odie. En vertegenwoordigen niet noodzakelijkerwijs standpunten die worden geuit of weerspiegeld in andere communicatieuitingen, strategieën of fondsen van Schreuders. Deze podcast is uitsluitend bedoeld ter informatie. Het materiaal is niet bedoeld als een aanbod of een uitnodiging tot aankoop of verkoop van een financieel instrument.